Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host today, Brian Walsh, editor of Vox's Future Perfect section. I'm joined by my colleague at Future Perfect, Vox senior reporter, Seagal Samuel. We also have Will McCaskill, a moral philosopher at Oxford University and the author of the new book, What We Owe the Future. We're here to talk with Will about a concept that has seized our attention here at Future Perfect. It's called long-termism. Long-termism rests on three basic tenets that I'll quote from Will's book. Future people count. There could be a lot of them. We can make their lives go better. Simple enough, right? We care about the people to come, our children, grandchildren, and more. We can expect that if humanity continues to exist for thousands of years into the future, There will be a lot of them, tens of billions perhaps, far more people than have ever existed to date. And we can see with something as well known as climate change that the decisions we make today will impact the lives of those future people, for better or for worse. At its simplest level, long-termism argues that we should be focusing more attention and money on the long-term future than we do today. But like many big ideas, Once you begin to unfold it, it gets very complicated very quickly. We owe the future, but just how much do we owe it? Is trying to help the potential people of the future more important than helping the many people in need right now? And perhaps most importantly, who gets to decide what the future should be? So let me use a metaphor that I'm borrowing from an excellent story Seagal published recently for Future Perfect on long-termism. Imagine long-termism as a train. Depending on how you would answer those questions, you might get off the train at different stations. Maybe you believe the long-term future matters more than we're currently giving it credit for, and we should do more to help it, in which case you can get off the weak long-termism stop. Maybe you believe the long-term future matters more than anything else, so it should be our absolute top priority. Then your station is called strong long-termism. Or maybe you believe the long-term future matters more than anything else so we should take big risks to ensure not only that it exists, but that it is utopian. In which case, congratulations, you are a galaxy-brained long-termist, and you just arrived in the station known as Crazy Town. I want to bring in Will McCaskill. Will, you're one of the founders of the effective altruism movement, a social movement dedicated to wielding reason and evidence to do the most good possible for the most people. For most of its existence, that's primarily meant helping desperately poor people living in the here and now. So how did you evolve to argue that doing the most good possible will often mean helping people who aren't even alive yet? On ethical grounds, I think the idea that future people matter morally is just really pretty uncontrovertible. So if you, you know, drop glass on a trail you're walking on and some person in the future cuts their feet on that glass. I think it doesn't really matter morally when that happens, whether that's 10 years time or 100 years time, if the person's not born yet. I think harm is harm, just no matter when it occurs. The sticking point for me for most of the time when I was kind of unsure about the arguments in favor of long-termism was practical. 
just what can we actually do to benefit future generations? Okay, there's climate change, for sure. Is there anything beyond that? And over the years, I became increasingly convinced that the answer is yes. And actually, there's many tractable things we can do. Where I now think the risk of, of a nuclear war um, in my lifetime is something like one in three. I think there are things we can do to reduce that risk. I expect hundreds of millions of people to die in my lifetime as a result of pandemics, both natural and man-made. Again, there are extremely tractable things we can do to reduce that risk, such as early detection, better PPE, various kind of sterilization technologies. I also just came to appreciate more in terms of the history of uh, social movements and activism that often we just should be taking a kind of longer-term perspective. We could have been acting on climate change many decades earlier than we were. If we had done that, I think we could have set the trajectory of uh, our response to that challenge onto a better path. And so now it no longer looks to me like the stuff that we can do to benefit future generations is just kind of philosophers sitting in an armchair kind of speculating about, you know, things one could possibly do. Instead, it's actually, there are these really pressing challenges. They're very bad for the long, for the short term too. Like even just on very short term grounds, we are not investing nearly enough in worries about nuclear war, worries about the next pandemic. But then also, in addition, these have potentially very long-lasting persistent effects that could create an apocalyptic or dystopian future. And that just shoots them even further up the kind of priority ranking, in my view. So, Will, what you discussed, you know, these are big existential risks that a lot of scientists are increasingly worried about, whether it is a nuclear war, whether it is a bioengineered pandemic much worse than COVID. I mean, what makes long-termism different? What makes it really beyond focusing on X risk? It's not just about the safety of the future, I assume, but also about something else, about what that future should be. Am I, am I correct to say that? Yeah, certainly. So in what we are the future, um, as well as risks to just the survival of civilization, assuming that future generations have a future at all, it's also about avoiding kind of dystopian futures as well. I think if history had gone differently, the Nazis could have won World War II if they'd had more power. They, you know, had aims at establishing a world government, establishing a thousand-year empire. I actually think that with technological advancements, that could have been not just a thousand-year empire, but something indefinite. And I think that a possible outcome of a third world war could be something just as terrifying. And so I think risks of stable totalitarian futures, or even just that we kind of fail to continue with moral progress. Imagine if we just had the Roman Empire's models indefinitely, which were extremely patriarchal, slave owning, enjoyed watching torture for entertainment. That would be a catastrophe too, even though it's not of the same form as uh, risks to the survival of civilization. So, you know, uh, Will mentioned something, uh, a metaphor, actually, talking about imagining yourself as a hiker, you've broken a bottle of glass, then that harms someone 10 years into the future. I mean, under long term, as you think that that person 10 years in the future has as much value as someone now to a certain extent. You know, that reminded me of Peter Singer, you know, the philosopher who's one of the really founding thinkers around effective altruism with a thought experiment of his own, thinking about you see a drowning child, surely you would jump into that pool to save them even at the risk of damaging your clothes. And that's kind of one of the arguments that says we should be doing more to help people here and now. I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective as someone who's 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 followed this subject, who's written about it, how do you see those those two metaphors? I mean, do you agree with the upshot of either of those arguments? And, you know, what should that mean about determining how much we're value we're really allocating, whether it's the present day or to the future? So this famous Peter Singer thought experiment of the drowning child and the upshot of that, you know, the, the, what, what he was trying to argue there was that this is akin to the situation with global poverty, hunger. You know, we in the sort of richer nations see people in poorer countries, uh, really, really suffering in intense poverty. And we have the means to help them in a pretty low cost way to ourselves, the equivalent of getting our clothes muddy. We should, we should really be helping the global poor. Do you, first of all, agree with that upshot? I agree that there isn't a morally relevant difference between refusing to save the drowning child and refusing to give, you know, $3,000 to save the life of someone in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa who's otherwise dying of malaria. The, you think we should save the drowning child? We, I think we should save the drowning child, exactly. And the relevant difference is the situation we're in, sadly, and it's this horrific situation, is more like you wake up after like traveling in a 
foreign country, perhaps, and there's been an explosion. And now there's like a child that you could save like right in front of you. But there's also just like some other group of children and they're screaming in pain. And at the same time, you hear this ticking and you're like, maybe it'll be a bomb. Maybe we'll all die at once. So it's not just one child in front of us. Like the horrible model reality we face is that there are just so many different problems that we must be facing. And the key challenge of effective altruism is trying to bring all of that on scene and at least have the conversation about of all of those different problems, we can't help all of them, which is a tragic situation, but which should we focus on? But the one thing you shouldn't do is just sit around watching it all. You should at least save the child. Maybe you should do the other thing. That's the hard question. Exactly. So these are like the hard questions of what to do when you encounter these trade-offs. And in your book, you write, the ends do not always justify the means. We should try to make the world better, but we should respect moral side constraints, such as Absolutely. against harming others. Right. Yeah. So like this is, this is sort of where the rubber hits the road with long-termism, where things get a little bumpy and tricky. So you say clearly that you don't think it's okay to contravene basic rights of people today just because we want to help future people. But at the same time, you are willing to reallocate some spending, some resources on present people to these more long-termist causes. Yet, it clearly does, in some sense, harm present people to withhold funding for them to get, you know, let's say, healthcare or housing. So if healthcare or housing is a basic right in a global society that's as rich as ours, is it wrong to withhold those things in favor of future people, just like you said you do think it's wrong to not save the drowning child or to not help the global poor? Yeah, I think those things are morally very different. So kind of as an analogy, like imagine a couple of decades ago or something, decision about whether to invest in kind of clean tech versus global health or something. There's two questions. Like one is just, do you help one group or do you help another group? And then a second is like, do you use one group as a means? Do you harm one group as a means to another? And I think like if you're investing in clean technology because you think, wow, climate change is just such a big problem, it's so under-invested in, I don't think that's in a relevant sense using the global poor as a means. Otherwise, I think we have the conclusion because we're in these trade-offs that we're then just violating rights all of the time. If I'm you know, preventing deaths and malaria, then, well, people have a right to not die of tuberculosis too. And if we think, well, failing to provide that is also violating their rights in this sense where we're talking about side constraints, then anything we do just violates people's rights and it becomes a little redundant, I think. I see what you mean. But the reason I started with the drowning child thought experiment of Peter Singer's is in that thought experiment, which you said you agree with the upshot of that. Yeah you're not stepping on somebody's head in order to save yeah. the child drowning in the pond. So how is that different from this? Oh, because morality is not only about failing, but it's not violating people's rights. So I think we should be trying to do good. And what Peter Singer's thought experiment shows is that we have enormously strong moral reasons to do good, even in situations where you're not violating people's rights. So that was the upshot. So if I just walk past, then I have not like, harmed the person in the same way that I would have done had I, you know, drowned the child myself. But nonetheless, I am like acting immorally. And so the fact that this child drowning in the shallow pond, maybe I have no relationship to them, maybe I will never meet them again. Nonetheless, like they are a person and that gives me certain obligations to help them. And then the tough issue that we face is like, okay, there's not just this one child, there's like a billion different problems in the world. And all of these obligations are competing. And we need to figure out um, this very tough question of which do we focus on first? Yeah. Doesn't this all just come down to what you consider an inviolable basic right? Right? Like, you know, you could say, you know, some people would say in a global society as rich as ours, healthcare or housing or not going hungry or whatever is like an inviolable basic right. And so if you're depriving some, someone of that in 2022, it is the moral equivalent of like stepping on their head in order to like reach the drowning child in the pond and pull them out. Like, is that is that not what it just comes down to? So I believe that those things are rights. So I believe in positive rights as well as negative rights. Like I think for most people, like the right to have a healthy life and, you know, at least have the minimal conditions for survival is often more important than the right to freedom of association or classic negative rights. The distinction instead is like the acts and missions distinction, which if you're a non-consequentialist is crucial. So I do just think like there's this very intuitive moral distinction where 
Person one walks past a child drowning in a shallow pond. Person two walks up to a child that's playing in a shallow pond and drowns them. Now, there are some arguments um, <laughs> that morally those two things are the same. But I think intuitively we think that the latter person who drowned the child is doing something much more wrong than the first person who merely failed to save them. And so that's the kind of key distinction. I, I think that's very intuitive and I have no issue with that. We can grant, though, that one is wronger than the other and still say, but that other one is also wrong. It's also wrong to to deprive someone of healthcare or food or whatever, right? Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree that that's wrong too. But then if we're doing this question of how do we prioritize? So, okay, I have my annual donations. I can prevent some people from dying from malaria. I could prevent them from dying of AIDS. I could prevent them from dying of tuberculosis. I could prevent them from some chance of dying in a pandemic. Now, you could say, I have wronged all of those people. Like, I have to choose one. So whatever I do, I will have wronged all of those other people. Right. Um, I'm like fine with that. It's kind of accurate, I think, as a way of speaking. But it doesn't help the prioritization question because we still need to ask, like, which of those things should we do? Right. Okay. So, but I feel like we should have the integrity to acknowledge, like, it is still doing a kind of harm. It is still wronging somebody, but it's, we, we might say less wrong, right? You're, you're wanting to avoid the wronger one, but be willing to do the less wrong thing because you're, you're having a, a ranked prioritization. Is that fair? Yeah. So I think, um, here's one way of putting it. The language I tend to use is, Let's do the best thing. Let's do the thing that helps the most. The language it sounds like you prefer is let's do the least wrong thing. Let's do the thing that like harms others the least or is like least immoral. I'm quite sympathetic to that mode of framing too. But I think ultimately in terms of the decisions we make, the same considerations will apply. It's just, are we talking about most good or least bad? It's actually kind of, I think, coming down to the same thing, right? It's, it's just like what on balance looks like the best move. Um, I think we're both trying to like net out at what's going to do the least harm and do the most good as far as we can tell. I don't think yeah, we're exactly. actually disagreeing about this. I think that might be like. When we think about the obligations we have to, to others, including to the potential future, I mean, you know, that drowning child exists right now. It's in front of you in this case, or even if we're thinking about a child who might be separated from us by space in another country, we do know they're alive. Uh, with long terms, of course, we're talking about potential future, potential people who may exist. I don't want to get too deep into population ethics because I read your book and the chapter on that really mentioned at the top that this stuff is almost for graduate students of philosophy. So I feel a little afraid to, to wade in. But I do want you to talk a little bit about the sheer size of the potential future, how that I believe, at least, is a, is a pretty key to the argument that we do need to do more for long-term value, that, that you know, we're talking about huge numbers here. How does that factor into the kind of calculations we should be making here? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's clearly relevant because, in general, it just seems like, you know, the numbers matter morally, where if you're confronted by another disaster situation, it's a burning building, you could save 10 people from one wing or like 100 people from another. I think it's just like a very common sense moral view that you should save 100 people. Everyone has, you know, equal moral status. And so that means the interests of 100 uh, should be prioritized over the interests of the 10. And then when you're looking to future generations, yeah, there's just a lot of potential future people. I mean, even conservative estimates, I think the number of people who could exist in the future is something like a thousand to one. And I do think it's true that like the things we can do to benefit future generations, they do involve more uncertainty than things we can do to benefit the here and now. I think there are some things like investing in early detection of pandemics or advanced PPE, better vaccines, uh, will very reliably impact the present and the future as well. But what exactly are the numbers here? It's like much more unsure. And so there's a difficult weighing where within effective altruism, there's this spectrum of people who just really want reliable evidence, robust feedback loops, versus things that just, yeah, genuinely involve less certainty, things are more messy. However, it is focused on what seems to be kind of, in my view, really most important, like these future pandemics or next world war. And so it's a matter of, of weighing those two things, I think. What do you do when you're trying to deal with that uncertainty? Because again, when I go back to effective altruism, one of the things that really makes it pop for me is there is a real effort to put numbers on things, to prioritize things, to say, okay, 
these malaria bed nets, that's a better cause, a more effective cause than, say, I don't know, deworming, not to get into the worm wars. But, you know, when you're dealing with that longer term future, and, and I don't mean even beyond decades ahead, those sort of threats we say now, but really thinking about the long term arc of where this might be going, what do you do when, the, when you don't have those numbers? What do you rely on, I suppose? One thing to do is just to try and get as good numbers as possible. The f overall framework of handling uncertainty, which is um, by far the most widely accepted framework among decision theorists, is expected value theory. So you look at all possible future outcomes, you try your best to kind of give probabilities to those outcomes and how good or bad those outcomes would be. And then, uh, sorry, it gets a bit technical, but you uh, multi multiply <laughs> the probabilities and the values. So you're looking at like both probability of having an impact and how positive that impact would be if you had it. In fact, I think both of those things into account. So you have very high-level moral math, I guess, to a certain extent, because you're also not just thinking about now, but the future as well. Yeah, exactly. And so for some things, we can start to at least make progress on getting better probability estimates, even in the case of great uncertainty. So one area that we've really championed is the uh, area of forecasting. It's kind of like an art and science. One example was like 2016. There was a forecast in this community prediction platform, Metaculus, about the chance of a global pandemic that would kill at least 10 million people within a year or 100 million cases within the next decade. And there, the estimate was like one in three, the kind of community estimate. We can do that same thing for some of the other risks we face. So what's the chance of like a pandemic that kills 800 million people, 10% of the world's population? There are these questions on those same community um, prediction platforms, kind of giving extra weight to people who are particularly good at making predictions. And they put that estimate at about 10%. Next would be like, okay, we're doing something to try and reduce the risk of those future pandemics. Perhaps we're doing widespread kind of early detection. Then like by how much are we reducing the risk? There's gotta be a, just a subjective estimate there. Um, I don't know of like uh, precise probability statements, but we can at least kind of do our best. So take leading experts and they can like really analyze the various scenarios we're worried about. And perhaps they think like this particular vaccine technology or this particular early warning system might reduce that risk by 10% or something. That would reduce the overall risk of the kind of that worst case pandemic by one percentage point. And then you've got this incredible, sorry, then you've got this incredibly <laughs> tricky question of like, where is that on the kind of value side of things as well? So, Will, you know, you were you were sort of explaining a little bit about how we use expected value to, to sort of calculate a decision's, you know, worth. And I like that's a totally logical tool to use if you're trying to make like a sort of classic decision, like if you're a gambler placing a bet in a casino or something. But it can lead you to pretty absurd conclusions if you're trying to game out a scenario where it's tiny, tiny probabilities of enormous payoffs, right? And so this is like a, a classic issue faced by strong long-termism, where if we're just sort of naively following the math of expected value, then, you know, that would say to me, hey, if you can save a million lives today or shave 0.0001% off the chance of uh, human extinction, you know, I should decide to let the million people die, right? But that seems like intuitively wrong. And I know you acknowledge this objection, which in long-termism land is, is known as the fanaticism objection. And you've argued that like, if this were just about talking about tiny probabilities of enormous value, you actually wouldn't be endorsing it. But the things that you're talking about with us right now, like the chance of horrifying pandemics or another common topic is runaway AI, like that these do not concern tiny probabilities, which seems like fine as far as it goes. But it's sort of funny to me because if we take that fanaticism objection seriously, which I think we have to, it really seems to limit the remit of what you as a long-termist can advocate for. And it, you know, you, you've you written literally the case for strong long-termism, but if you take that objection seriously, it, it seems to make strong long-termism actually surprisingly weak in practice. And it seems to just lead you back to a previous train station on the rail line, which is weak long-termism. How do you square that? Again, as a kind of refresher, weak long-termism is the idea that you know, positively impacting future generations is a model priority of our time. So long long-termism is that it's the model priority. Um, as in like the most important thing. I think you can have either of those views and that I think those are like orthogonal to the question of how you deal with tiny amounts, tiny probabilities of enormous amounts of value. Because you can say like, no, this is the issue of our time, even though the like probabilities are quite high. So 
I don't know. Some people I know, for example, think that the chance of an AI-driven like utter apocalypse catastrophe is like 40% or something in our lifetimes. If so, and then I think that's like got a pretty good claim to being like the moral priority. Other people think that climate change will like end civilization this century. Again, that would be like, that's the priority, I think. But in no case does that involve like small probabilities of huge amounts of value. Just briefly on that, like, I think this is like by far the best objection to expected value theory. And my honest view is just like, I don't know. There's like the kind of theoretical discussion. And unfortunately, you can actually have a provable paradox. So, okay, we want to reject fanaticism. You can basically prove that if you reject fanaticism, then you, you get these other like really implausible consequences. So I think the best thing to say at the moment is like, okay, we philosophers, we failed you for the time being. We're going to keep working on it. Anti-fanaticism doesn't rule out like any use of like comparatively low probabilities. So like, you know, I put on a seatbelt if I go on a car journey that can be like a risk of a uh, death of like one in a hundred million or something. Putting on a seatbelt's a really low cost and death is really bad. So I want to avoid that, even if it's a very low probability. Or just when we insure the house against a fire or something, we're often talking about, you know, very low probabilities. Or if I vote, um, this is a little more controversial, but I think that like voting is justified because you do have a chance of swinging the election and it's enormously impactful if you do so. But again, there we're talking about like one in a million probabilities or something. And so... All of these are kind of non-fanatical probabilities. Sometimes people want to say like a 1% chance, that's like too small, I'm going to ignore that. And I'm like, no, that's a really big chance, for some, depending on the state. It, well, it's a, big, it's a big chance when I'm talking about a big outcome, I suppose. Exactly. exactly yeah. Yeah. Like a, yeah. yeah. You know, you're, so you're sort of saying, oh, with expected value paradoxes, we're, the philosophers are you know, failing us for now, but we'll mm. hopefully get into potential other ways of approaching this a little bit mm -hmm. later, uh, just sure. as a bit of a teaser. But I guess it's just it's just sort of striking to me that when you take the you know reasonable bounds to expected value and to long termism seriously reasonable objections you do seem to arrive at a at a back at a weaker version so i, I it just leads me to sort of wonder like to what degree are you sure of strong long termism again strong long termism is the view that uh concern for future generations and positively improving the lives of future generations is the moral priority just like it's the the thing that we as a world should focus kind of most on and you're just absolutely right that it's just like a, a spectrum. So as an analogy, maybe think about like the animal welfare movement or something where, okay, like step one, how about we don't torture 80 billion animals completely unnecessarily on factory farms? And then there's just like, everyone can agree that's like the best next step. And then there's a question of just like, how far do you go? Should you be concerned about cows if they live happy lives and are mm -hmm. like um, slaughtered humanely? Should you be concerned about the suffering of animals in the world? Should you be concerned about insects? There's like all of these kind of steps you can go. And I think that's just going to be quite a general issue for social movements. If there's just like many issues to address. In the animal case, it's just pretty clear, like the most important next step is eliminating like the worst successes of factory farming. I think in the case, like because we're spending like so little of society's attention on worst case pandemics, on dangerous new technologies, on war. Look, if we can just like manage them as well as we've managed like the risk for masteroids, for example, I would just be like over the moon. That's like, yeah, that's the low hanging <laughs> fruit. Right. That's the, it, yeah, exactly. Basically like this, this is not, I just want to note, this is not answering the harder question of what we do more in the further on the spectrum when, when the rubber really hits the road. But I think you're correctly pointing out that there is a lot of low hanging fruit right now. Yeah, absolutely. But, and the thing, I mean, it basically just want to distinguish the kind of practical and the philosophical questions. So, like in the case of animal welfare, I'm like perfectly happy to debate the philosophical question of like, okay, suppose you have an animal and you bring it up and it has a good life and then slaughter it humanely. Is that okay? Like that's philosophically interesting, but like in the context of trying to push for better like welfare for animals, it's like kind of changing the topic. And I think that's kind of true for the case of uh, future generations too, where there are like really hard questions, like philosophical questions about if we're spending 1% of society's resources, should we spend more? Should it be 10%? Should it be 99%? And I'm like, these, I just admit, these are like really hard philosophical questions and I don't think anyone has like solved them. But when we're at the moment spending like 0.01%, it feels just like a different topic. So we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we're gonna really tackle some of those hard questions and maybe get on board the train all the way to the final destination of Crazy Town. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. And we're back. I'm Brian Walsh here with Seagal Samuel and Will McCaskill talking about the ethics and effectiveness of long-termism. So, you know, we, we got into weak long-termism, we got into strong long-termism. Those are the stops on this train we discussed. Now, you know, we're going to get to crazy town. We're going to get to galaxy-brained long-termism. Uh, Seagal, you know, I, I, I took this from your story to a certain extent. You know, we've hit those earlier ones. What's the, what's the final stop in this station? I mean, what's the sort of ultimate destination when you're taking this long-termism train? I'm using the term galaxy brain long-termism a little tongue-in-cheek to refer to this view that we should be willing to take huge risks to make the long-term future utopian, right? Like, so not only make sure it exists, but it's actually utopian. And you sort of expressed to me when we talked earlier that you think that view is mistaken, that we shouldn't be just willing to take gargantuan, like pretty risky bets to make that utopian future happen. But I think it's actually pretty easy for someone to arrive at that view if they proceed from the sort of philosophical ideas you lay out in your book, especially this idea called the total view of population ethics, which it's very complicated, but very, very oh, like no. to just, it's okay, Brian, we're going to nutshell it. It'll be okay. I promise. Basically, the nutshell version is the total view says, hey, more of a good thing is better. Good lives are good. So increasing the number of people living good lives just makes the world better. So let's make more people, right? A lot of people find this unintuitive. I'm one of them. The sort of like pithy way of summing up the classic objection to this is to say, we're in favor of making people happy, but neutral about making happy people. But Will, I think you sort of are not neutral about making happy people. You you think that is indeed a good thing to do. Um, and so that does seem to lead you to this view of saying, hey, we really need to prevent extinction so that all these many, many future people can exist. And we need to work pretty damn hard to try to make their lives as happy as possible, right? And I should note before Will, Will starts maybe that in his book, he starts off this chapter by saying, essentially, this is something that really only gets discussed for graduate students of philosophy. So we're getting all getting a sort of an up, up level on this if we try to actually figure it out. Thanks for that, Brian. So I guess with what you call galaxy-brained long-termism is a bit different from what I was understanding you was referring to in our last conversation. And I actually think there's a few different considerations that kind of are being run together. So one is like taking great risks to bring about utopia. Sounds to me a little bit like this are you happy with like doing a bad means for the greater good? Which again, feels like a kind of a separate 
issue. Similarly with the like, are we concerned about thinking about utopia or just like mitigating extinction risk? I mean, I kind of think everyone should be concerned about thinking about a better future. I mean, certainly avoiding um, dystopian outcomes like perpetual, you know, Third Reich um, seems pretty uh, worth avoiding for me and not that galaxy-brained. And then there's a the final thing of like population ethics and whether we think just, you know, if you've got a good civilization, like at least a sufficiently good civilization, it just being bigger is better because there's just more good stuff in the world. So when I was understanding galaxy-brained kind of long-termism before, it's like, if weak is like, it's a priority, as long as it's the priority, galaxy-brained would be like, it's the overwhelming important priority and we should just do everything we can for <laughs> yes. the sake of posterity. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I was understanding it. And those other things are like all really important, but separate issues. Intuitively, I have uh, what you described as the person-affecting view as well, where, you know, in terms of my moral intuitions, I think making people better off is important and I don't get much of a sense intuitive sense that it's kind of good to make new happy people. I think once you really dig into it though, that view just faces like extremely damaging, extremely hard problems. I think it's very hard to be concerned about any long-term impacts, like the long-term impacts of climate change, for example, if you have this view. I actually think you end up running into like pure logical inconsistency as well. Um, this is kind of all discussed in the chapter of the book. One thing I do want to say though, is just like, I and others who work on this, I'm just like, like I say, like, this is really hard stuff. And again, this is kind of, there are provable kind of paradoxes where any view you have in this area, you end up with some like extremely counterintuitive implication. And what does that mean? Like, well, what I suggest is that the kind of interim goal we should try and have is a period of kind of, basically we just want to like figure the ethics out before we take any like large scale irreversible actions like spreading to the stars. Because maybe this view of population ethics is totally wrong. I don't know, maybe civilization's bad and we sh like, shouldn't spread it. Maybe um, there's like something totally different we should be doing instead. Um, and so I think the interim endpoint, I think we should really be trying to get to. I mean, I call it the long reflection. People always criticize that for sounding too much like philosophers sitting in a seminar room. Not really what I'm meaning, <laughs> but like what I'm meaning is just like getting us to a safe space, not taking like huge irreversible actions like space settlement, and really just taking some of these issues seriously until we've like, you know, people have had the chance and society has had the chance to reflect on this and make as much moral progress as is possible. Tell it to Elon Musk though, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Elon's gotten that memo because he's trying to make Mars livable ASAP. And uh, I think, you know, he's he's someone who at least claims to be in line with long-termism or, or to be like, a, for long-termism to be a match for his own philosophy. Of course, that doesn't mean we necessarily have to be too credulous of that and think Elon equals long-termism. It doesn't. But, you know, it's pretty easy to see how these kinds of views can be the wind in the sails for someone like Elon, who is not interested in having a super long reflection and figuring out all these ethical questions before we go to the stars. He wants to go to the stars now. I mean, I think that's just an error, in a essentially. So if you take seriously, there's this enormous amount of value at stake in the future you know, almost everyone who ever lives is kind of yet to come. Well, if we just like set up the wrong institutions, if we set up the wrong values, if we just like make a mistake now before we've like carefully figured things out, that's like potential catastrophe and like an in potentially indefinite catastrophe. And one argument you might have for thinking, oh, we've got to like, you know, make society interplanetary is that, oh, well, it's going to be like a backup. It's going to be like a safe you know, it's going to reduce existential risk dramatically. I think that argument doesn't really work uh, because, well, for many existential risks that people worry about, especially the biggest ones, it gets you even <laughs> even if there's a settlement on Mars. So like rogue AI, um, certainly Mars will not save you. In other cases, I think like you can get the same benefits like radically more cheaply. So should we have protection for like really worst case pandemics, such as having like perfectly sealed refuges that scientists who are capable of developing vaccines can live in in the case of a really worst case pandemic perhaps they're underground perhaps they're under the sea like perhaps they're in antarctica like all of these all of these places are just like much easier to build refuges uh, than mars you know i think there's other things like it can drive forward like helpful technological progress like providing internet to people who can like can't otherwise have them and so on um i think it can be an inspiring ideal like i found the apollo missions inspiring um but i think this particular argument of like we need to pay, place a settlement on mars because that's the best way of reducing existential risk i think i think it's pretty, it's pretty long a lot of what we're talking about here really 
underscores the fact there is something unique about this time period. When we think about the influence that we're going to have on that long-term future, I think you make the argument, and others have as well, that this, you know, maybe it's our most important century, that this century could be very different from what's come before, perhaps also what's going to come after it in terms of that influence. And what is it about now that makes this so important? And I guess connected to that as well, you talk about taking reflection, you know, can we do that too? Is there a risk to that? Is there a risk to slowing down, to to stagnating as well, when we think about what impact that is going to have on that longer term future? You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to say it's like the most important time ever, but the f- <laughs> we're certainly at an like extraordinarily odd time compared to both history and the future. And uh, the easiest way to see that is looking at kind of technologically driven economic growth. So for most of human history, 300,000 years, there was very, very slow technological progress. The world that you died in was very, very similar to the world you were born in. And that really changed uh, about 200 years ago, 250 years ago, uh, with the Industrial Revolution. And now the world economy grows at, you know, about 3% per year. So that's like 30 times more than it did during the agricultural era. I mean, if you look at it on a sort of historical scale, you look at a flat line that essentially just over the last 200 years goes up like a hockey stick. Yeah, it's com- it's com- yeah. it's completely wild. So, you know, people sometimes talk about the singularity. I kind of think we're already living through it because things are changing so fast um, since the Industrial Revolution compared to the time before that. And what that means is that we're just moving through the kind of space of all possible technologies much, much faster than in the past. And some of those technologies, I think, give great power. So obviously, there's like enormous benefits. And technology has been a very significant part of the reason why people have better lives uh, today than I think they did in the, in the agricultural era. But it also creates like risks. Nuclear weapons got developed as part of this. That was the, you know, I think is the first warning shot for the creation of technologies that could really end all of us. Um, also, I think like new technologies that give us um, greater social control, um, we're already seeing this with like surveillance, face recognition technology. I think AI is going to make that a lot worse again in the coming decades. So that's kind of why we're like in a, this very weird time compared to, and potentially influential time compared to the past. Compared to the future, I think it's also true because there's just this level of tech progress just cannot continue indefinitely where if we have kind of 2% economic growth per year for 10,000 years, you get these completely absurd conclusions like uh, you have you know, a trillion civilizations worth of economic output for every atom that we could possibly reach. And that just seems, I'm not saying it's impossible, who knows, but like extremely implausible to me. That suggests that, wow, out of 300,000 years in the past, who knows how many years in the future we're living at this time of extraordinary change And that just means like lots more new things happening that we need to be prepared for. Will the arguments about technological stagnation and the needs to make sure we don't stagnate technologically is actually one of the like weirder parts of the argument in your book to me. There's this like image in your book that I really stuck on. You kind of liken us to a climber. You say, we may be like a climber scaling a sheer cliff face with no ropes or harness, with a significant risk of falling. In such a situation, staying still is no solution. That would just wear us out and we would fall eventually. Instead, we need to keep on climbing. Only once we've reached the summit will we be safe. Right? So, like, this is an argument saying we cannot afford to technologically stagnate. It's it's not sustainable. We need to develop AI. We need to develop all these technologies. We need to push forward. But I feel like the part that this analogy leaves out is like, there's significant risk to climbing too, right? There's significant risk that comes from AI. Indeed, like a lot of the existential risk scholars, like AI is one of the top risks they worry about. So like, when I'm picturing this image, I'm picturing someone, you know, yeah, it's kind of, they don't want to just stay still on the on the cliff face. But also, it's a situation where with every step you try to take up the cliff face, with every step you try to climb, the rocks are coming away from the cliff face and falling into the ocean. And if you take another step, another step, you risk crumbling the whole cliff face and falling into the sea with the rocks, right? That's more what it seems like to me. One uh, thing I'll clarify is this is talking about stagnation in particular. So that's where we're not technologically advancing at all. It's not about like how fast we should be going or how slowly, nor is it about the more fine-grained thing of like which technologies do we advance or not. So I find it pretty plausible that we should, uh, if we could slow down 
um, AI progress. Uh, I think it's certainly true that within biotech, there are dangerous things that we should try and slow down or just not develop at all. And like, obviously things that are wonderful for, you know, improving people's quality of life and protecting against pandemics. And so we should speed them up too. Uh, and so I think in practice, it's like more about speeding up the kind of more advanced, the better technologies. However, I do think like this idea of stagnation, where there's like, literally no growth at all, um, is a pretty worrying one. I mean, here's an analogy. It's like, supposing we just stagnated at 1920s level of technology, um, just nothing got developed after that point. You might think, oh, that's sustainable, because <laughs> like, the economic growth is unsustainable. But it isn't, because we were relying on fossil fuels. We had no other source of energy. And so what would have happened is that we would have burned through literally all fossil fuels we could access. That would have been like the worst climate catastrophe. We would have no way of protecting against it. And then living standards would decline, because we no longer had access to energy. So we needed to kind of get beyond that so that we could develop uh, clean sources of technology, wind and solar and so on. And I think like we're currently in situations where like it's only a matter of time before there's some nuclear war, even if for some time being we manage to like have things coordinated and like actually it's like peace and so on. I think that's like not a forever thing, like, you know, societies and social systems change. I think with the next level of technological progress too, this is the big worry is like we get stuck with a technological capability to engineer new viruses without any technological capability to defend against them, then it's just only a matter of time before they're used and global kind of catastrophe results. And so that, that's the kind of key argument. Oh, and then like climbing, like there's this question of like, how fast do you climb? Maybe if you climb really, really right. fast, it's right. just, you're going to, you're going to fall off too. And so instead what we want is this slow, careful, kind of steady ascent. That might be like, if we're really running with this analogy, maybe that's the thing like we most want. And it's also, sorry, I'm really laughing on this analogy now. <laughs> it might be, I mentioned the summit. Um, that's like slightly wrong because it could be that there are ledges. Not, right. <laughs> not past the summit. There's like some level of tech mm -hmm. that's like, Hey, we can just hang out here for a little while really get our kind of model views in order and like social cooperation better and then ascend further. We've got to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about one of the biggest questions hanging over long-termism, one that really gets at what we're talking about here, which is who ultimately has the power to decide where we're going in the future. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So we've ridden the train all the way to crazy town and back. Now we want to talk about who gets to drive it, who will make the decisions that we really are debating here. You know, Sigal, this question was really important for you in writing your piece. You know, why does it matter so much to figure out how we should be deciding this as opposed to letting it just happen? I think when you let things just happen, you get a situation where whoever happens to have the most power or the most money or the most clout ends up deciding for others. And we don't want that here because, you know, we're talking about like who gets to decide for the future of all of humanity, right? So if a movement is going to claim to represent the interests of all humans, not just now, but for all eternity, we really want to make sure that's representative of how they would articulate their own interests. 
And Will, what do you think? I mean, this is, you know, this is a major question I think we have here because we're talking about just massive amounts of value. We're talking about massive choices. How do you see how those decisions should actually be made? I really see the kind of goal of the movement as setting up a world such that future generations can actually decide for themselves what their future looks like. And so if you kind of look at the um, things we really focus on. So one is just avoidance of catastrophe. Again, worst case pandemics, nuclear war. And just so ensuring future generations even have a future, like a world to kind of live in. And then the second thing, which I am just really worried about, is like intense concentrations of power. So I talk about this quite a bit in chapter four of you know, the future. I think there's good arguments for thinking that like this is an outcome that you could have from AI, where you have some single, like pretty narrow kind of ideology perhaps like a concentration in the power of a small number of political leaders or even company leaders, and they get to decide the future. I think like that would be its own sort of catastrophe. Whereas instead, what we could try and have is like a future that um, avoids that, that has you know a wide diversity of moral perspectives, a kind of situation where like there can be a great debate and discussion and disagreement, and we can like actually make moral progress over time, rather than kind of concentration of power. And I know it's a little confusing, but like I actually think that's the right way to understand the worries about like rogue AI too. Or it's like the alternative is like power seeking AI. It's just that their worries are so I think there's worries from concentration of power in the hands of human beings. And if anything, I'm actually more worried by that. But then their worry is like concentration in the hands of like people of beings, namely AIs with like entirely alien values too. I want to sort of get at the end here to that question around how we promote that worldview diversification you talked about. But real quickly, you know, you, you mentioned AI a few times. And one of the things I found really interesting about your book is the way you looked at AI as it could relate to something called moral lock-in. And that's an important concept we haven't actually touched on yet. But again, when we think about the future, it's not just about the future existing. We want the future to be good. And I feel like one of your real concerns is that whether it's AI or as a technology that could actually aid this in an unfortunate way, you could get a situation where you are locked into a moral system that is really bad. And we've had bad moral systems in the past, clearly, but then we've been able to overcome them. What's special, perhaps, about if it is AI that's really key to this, that could allow that to happen, which would really be one of the worst possible futures we could have? So yeah, the worry in general is just like power seeking and people with narrow ideologies often try and gain power, try and influence that power. And I think that can be very bad. With AI in particular, I think there are two things that make it, maybe three things that make it particularly worrying. One is that I think there are surprisingly good arguments for thinking that AI could accelerate rates of technological progress. So earlier we said, well, it used to be that growth was a bit slow, then there was the Industrial Revolution. One product of the Industrial Revolution was that it gave comparatively greater power to Western Europe and its offshoots compared to the rest of the world. What happened? Oh, well, what a surprise. That was used for colonialism, scramble for Africa, um, domination of the kind of rest of the world. If it's true that AI can accelerate technological progress, the same thing could happen again, but to an even greater extent where you could end up with, it's now like a single country or single company with um, more power than the rest of the world combined. So it could quite quickly lead to discrepancy in power. A second is uh, how it changes the kind of, what I see as like underlying mechanisms that make kind of liberal egalitarian democracy kind of possible. So authoritarian rule has been the norm throughout history. Democracy is like this weird thing, basically, <laughs> by historical right. standards. I think a significant part of that is because in the kind of modern era, just the labor of all people are like very, is very like valuable. If, however, you now just have an automated workforce, you have automated scientists and engineers and automated like, manufacturing, perhaps you also have an automated police force, an automated army, then the kind of like evolutionary pressure really doesn't push towards democracy anymore. It's not really clear why a democratic country would be more effective than an authoritarian one. And that's really pretty scary too. And then the final thing is just, I think AI could give like, uh, could make this be much more persistent as well, where uh, you could have AI enforced constitutions, or as soon as you have, I mean, now we start to, starts to feel more sci-fi, but um, if AI does speed up the level of technological progress, then things that feel like they're centuries away would actually only be decades away. But if you had the point at which you have um, digital beings um, controlling things, where you've got like, some dictator, they upload themselves, well, they are in principle immortal. And so even though we are used to like cultural change, moral change happening, the empires fall, I think AI could remove like all of those causes of change. 
And so it could just be like, who gets the power first? And that's pretty worrying. Well, that's truly frightening. And I think it also underscores why that long reflection period you, you mentioned is really important. We don't want to jump into this technology before. Ideally, we've settled out how to use it without ending up in that fairly dystopic outcome. Um, but Sigal, you know, we again, to bring it back to that question of like, this decision making process, this worldview diversification. Why do you think that's so important? I mean, and, and how do you think we should actually go about trying to create this? And obviously, I'd love you to follow up with Will on that, too. Yeah. So, Will, I'm curious what you think about a different way of looking at this puzzle um, when we're thinking about divvying up resources between the present and the future. You know, you were sort of saying earlier that expected value is the classic way to think about these problems. At Open Philanthropy, um, this researcher, Ajaya Kotra, has been one of the people developing this idea of worldview diversification, uh, which I think is like potentially very instructive here, right? So the basic idea is when you have uh, different worldviews or different moral priorities, you know, one option is to just naively use expected value to figure out like where to put all your money. The problem with that is that long-termism is always going to win no matter what, just because of the sheer number of beneficiaries it claims to represent, right? Like the hundreds of billions of humans who could possibly ever exist, um, which is always going to outnumber present humans. So that's a little bit, you know, Ajaya told me she feels a little bit bullied by or held hostage by this logic of expected value because it's it's always going to win on that model there's there's no way around it a different possibility is to embrace more of a value pluralism where you just say hey there's different sources of value uh sometimes they're in tension with each other maybe they're incommensurable you can't do an apples to apples comparison and so you can't naively apply expected value across all of them so for example you might have you know, just recognize these different sources of value. One might be long-termist, one might be near-termist, so present human suffering, mitigating that. One, you know, then you might also have like, we we want to care about animals, not just humans, right? Okay, right there, let's say you have three buckets in which you think moral value might lie. So on worldview diversification, what you would do is you would just think about, well, how plausible do I find each of those three views? And then, so that's your your credence for each one. And then you're going to divvy up your resources accordingly. And then maybe after that, you'll make some little adjustments here or there, like give a bonus to one view for, you know, because it claims to represent more people or whatever. But like this basic approach of just acknowledging, like there isn't one answer here. There's multiple sources of value. Sometimes they're fighting with each other. That's okay. It's messy. Better to actually just recognize that than to try to mathematize our way out of this. What's your feeling about that? So on the like, there's many sources of value. Maybe that's just like a fact of, again, model reality. Or maybe it's just that we don't know um, what, I mean, certainly it's true that we don't know what the kind of correct model view is. I kind of agree with that very strongly. So my second book, which was for an academic audience and therefore read by, I think, four people, uh, was exactly on <laughs> this time. Unlike this one, by the way, which is a New York <laughs> Times bestseller, we should note. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I really don't think that's going to happen with my second book. But basically, precisely about this predicament, it's like, yeah, all of this stuff is really tough. So then what follows from that? So on a global perspective, worldview diversification, I think, is just absolutely correct. Like, if I could push a button and suddenly, like, all of the world's resources is dedicated to posterity, I'd be like, um, maybe I'm not going to press that button. On the case of an individual, like, or like even a kind of large foundation, there I'm not nearly so sure. And the reason for this is just that if you're thinking as a philanthropist, you should be thinking of like, look at the world as a whole. What are all of the world's kind of priorities? How is it spending resources? And then even though these are now like large foundations, it, they are just tiny compared to the size of the world. So if you're thinking, okay, how much should we put into climate change versus AI safety or something, or like global health and development? And in each of climate change and global health and development, like hundreds of billions of dollars per year get spent on this. For um, AI safety, it's maybe like $200 million per year or something. So it's like a thousand-fold difference. And that means that like you as an individual are just like slightly... For the global allocation of resources, you're just slightly changing that like global allocation. And it seems like if you think with the first bit of money you give, that that's the right way, that's how like the allocation should go, probably you'll th you should think that's true for the last allocation as well. So I tend to think instead in terms of worldview compromise rather than worldview diversification, which is if I'm looking at this global allocation of resources, 
and I'm thinking, okay, what's the way in which I should steer it? And maybe it's just one thing, because I'm this small actor, so I just need to make this one push in a direction. That should be on the basis of like what looks good for many model perspectives. Perhaps placing special weight in a long-term perspective, but definitely for the many. Um, I, so I kind of call this also like the bust effect of altruism, right. where reducing the risk of war. I'm just like, this has been a good thing for thousands of years. The Moists, early consequentialists, were like, mm -hmm. this is a really good thing to do. I think it's really, like wars is bad from a like very wide array of perspectives. I think like generally increasing people's level of altruism, their reflectiveness about doing good, reducing pandemics, like clean technology. These are all things that just like, they look good from many different perspectives. And so those are the things that I like want to push the world in that direction on. But that means like, it's kind of like pushing on this one compromise thing rather than doing this kind of medley of stuff. That's at least how I see it. Well, I think it makes sense that you're saying you want something that looks robust on, you know, many different moral views. If that's the case, though, why wouldn't you want to bake into the very foundations of how you're thinking through long-termism the way all sorts of different people think about long-termism, right? Like, as you're, as you're sort of, like, laying the foundation of this worldview of long-termism, why not sort of run some experiments in a deliberative decision-making or democracy to try mm. to figure out, like, how do, you know, how does, like, so-and-so in Uganda think about this, right? Because so far it has been a very, like, limited to people in, you know, in the UK or the US. Um, it's very, it's a very global north kind of worldview, which is a problem not only from the, you know, point of view of racial diversity, but from the point of view of epistemic diversity. Um, yep. So EA has a lot of money right now. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried is, is willing to invest millions in this kind of thing. Have you thought about taking some of that money to actually run experiments and find out what sort of deliberative decision-making might yield like rich, diverse answers about how people want to chart the future? I'm really glad you mentioned kind of uh, deliberative democracy. So if you believe in both like long-termism and democracy, well, here's like this fundamental challenge. It's like future people, they don't have a vote, but they also can't have a vote. Like you can't represent them. So what's the best you can do? Like my favorite answer is citizens assemblies or futures assemblies, where you take right. a random selection of people, you, they get them in a room together. So this happened, um, an organization called Helena did this for World and uh, called American One Room. It's also happened like Ireland did it to advise on their abortion um, regulation. It's happened other times too. And um, yeah, you get them in a room. People have very different uh, moral perspectives. You've got like Republican and Democrat, and they come in very different views. They have two weeks, they like discuss all of these issues, and then you get a kind of output. Man, I would love to do this for like the world. And uh, yeah, it's something actually we're in discussion with an organization to do called, yeah, the world in one room. Um, it's like kind of tricky, tricky to do. Um, I mean, it'll be fascinating. It's logistically challenging, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's something I'd be like very interested in. If you are a listener to this podcast and you've, you might be, you've read Will's book, you're convinced about long-termism, whether you're weak, strong, galaxy brain, whatever form that might take, okay, what should you actually do? I mean, what should the, we talked about, I think what big philanthropists can do. We talked about maybe what, what governments can do, what philosophers can do, but ordinary people, what should they do to act in a, I suppose, a positive way for the long-term future of humanity? I think in general for individuals who want to take positive action to make the world better, Firstly, I think the two big things are donations and career choice. So donations, set up an organization giving what we can, encourages people to give at least 10% of their income. 7,000 people have done that now. Why are donations so good? It's because you can target the very most effective nonprofits working on these issues. And we've set up a fund at giving what we can called the Long-Termism Fund that will then like, you can kind of donate to that and it'll redirect to, you know, what the fund managers think are like the most impactful long-termist causes. Um, you might want to donate to other areas too, like Clean Air Task Force for clean energy tech or John Hopkins Center for health security, for example, for bio uh, preparedness. So that's the kind of donation side, given what we can, is the place to go. And then career choice is the other thing where you have 80,000 hours of working time in your life. That's this huge decision. You know, different careers have different potential for impact. You can work in nonprofits and research, policy, politics, journalism, like the just a wide array of ways in which you can have a positive impact. And we set up this website, 80,000hours.org, in order to advise people on how can you use your particular skills and interests and talents uh, to make as big an impact as possible. And you can find, 
enormous amounts of information on the website. There's a podcast um, and tailored one-on-one advice as well. That's all at 80,000hours.org. Well, thank you so much, Will. I think that's all for us today. Thank you to Sagal Samuel. Thank you to Will McCaskill for joining the panel. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks so much. Sophie Lalonde is our producer and engineer. Engineering help for this episode comes from Patrick Boyd. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Brian Walsh. This episode is part of a series featuring topics and ideas from Fox's Future Perfect section and is made possible with a grant from the BEMC Foundation. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.